Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Crux. I'm here with my partner, Mike Fernandez. Mike. Great to be here. Good to see you again. So as we tape this, uh, trending on Twitter today is the word kofefe. <laughs> which is, of again. course. The, the, again. Again. Yeah. Which, again, is the the famous uh, one of the tweets um, from President Trump and which he used. Undoubtedly that, falling asleep while he's Twittering. Exactly. So. But at the same time, there was a great study done uh, by the New York Times that appeared just recently over um, all of the president's 11,000 tweets since he became president. And the takeaways on this, you really have to take a look at it. It's just really remarkable that, let me go through a few of them. I'm going to ask you to comment uh, on one in particular, Mike. Over half of the president's tweets, the 11,000 tweets, are attacks. Not surprising. Um, the the other one or two other ones actually. Uh, by the way, in two thousand of the tweets, uh, the president found room to praise himself. Uh, so, <laughs> um, one of the things that I thought was a good takeaway, and I'll ask you about the third, was Twitter is not real life, is how the Times put it. Uh-huh. In other words, according to data that they took a look at, some of the topics in which he gets the most likes, Mike, mm-hmm. the NFL. Uh, the special, you know, Mueller's investigation, uh, the voter fraud stuff, they poll really poorly huh. with the general public. So in other words, Twitter is not real life, right. uh, as the Times um, said it. So take a look at that one, too. I, I, We all look at Twitter, and it influences so much these days. So it's literally an echo chamber. Correct. It's it's uh, complete uh, insular in many of, uh, uh, or in some ways insular. But the, the one that's the best that I like I wanted to ask you about is at one point, the president's staff wanted his tweets on a 15 minute delay. So what does that tell you? (laughs) Well, one, I don't know if that would be long enough. (laughs) Um, uh, But, but, you know, what's interesting is there's a historical aside on this. And that is, you know, what president do you think of as as, as really being uh, energetic and wanting to state his own own thoughts and and what other than Trump from an earlier era? Well, I would say Reagan. Let Reagan be Reagan, Reagan right? Yeah, yeah. And and, and, and and before our time, you know, one of the people that had that reputation was Harry Truman. Uh, Truman, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. So 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 one of the things. There's a book that yeah. came out in like the early 1980s. And the title of the book is Strictly Personal and Confidential. And what these are is it's a compendium of notes and letters that Truman asked his personal secretary, Rose Conway, to hold on to. And the direct order was he will dictate things, but then she's going to hold on to the letters for 24 hours. (laughs) And they're hysterical. But what that process did is it really saved him. Right. You know, because some of these things are a little, you know, shoot from the hip and they're white hot. And, yeah. You know, imagine if you could have exactly. some relief. Well, you know, and we, we joked at the beginning here about Kafefe. The reason why it's trending today on Twitter is apparently somebody responded to the president with that word as a uh, obviously an insult. And he said... <laughs> He responded by saying, how do you know that word doesn't have deep meaning? <laughs> and then someone else pointed out, I'm giving you my Twitter reading this morning. Somebody else pointed out that his his social media guy, the president, Stan Scavino, at the time it happened, said the president fell asleep in the middle of that. There you go. So as you said. There right? you go. So, but there a great, I mean, really, it's he's changed. You, you know, we make fun of him. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, he has really changed communications with his use of this well, tool. Well, right? he's also created a clientele for some of these large agencies. I yes. know when I was at Person Marstow, That's right. we had a number of clients that wanted us to set up systems in order to be responsive in case they got attacked. Yeah, totally. So speaking of Twitter, Jack Dorsey, the CEO, announced uh, last week that in, in a series of tweets that they are not going to take political advertisements. Of course, taking the opposite position of rival Facebook, which not only will take them, but will not edit or censor them and here's what here's what Dorsey said in in the tweet in the tweet we've made the decision 
to stop all political advertising on Twitter globally. We believe political message reach should be earned, not bought. So what's this all about, Mike? Well, first of all, I I think that uh, Jack Dorsey's response is a great competitive Mm -hmm. response. And and I think it's actually politically wise. Mm -hmm. Uh, That said, in some ways, they're both, both parties, Facebook and Twitter, Mm -hmm. are doing kind of the same thing, but it pulls apart. In a sense, they've both decided they don't want to be a referee. Right. Right. So so on one end, you have Facebook... Uh, through Zuckerberg saying we're going to wrap ourselves in the First Amendment and we're not going to edit anything. Exactly. And then on the other, you have Dorsey saying, you know what? We're not going to even have these ads. Right. And in some ways, it almost leaves out of their vest. I mean, uh, there was some commentary that uh, during the 2018 mid-year uh, elections that maybe uh, they had uh, revenue of about $3 million in the United States wow. from political is ads right? anyway, which yeah. is yeah. You know, really small compared to how yeah, so uh, the, the entire advertising uh, take for for them. Uh, all of that said, I do think that this was smart. I think that uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm continually concerned by what happens in our society as we equate speech with money. Right. You know, we saw that in two Supreme Court cases back in 76 with Buckley versus Vallejo. Yep. And then where they, the Congress at that time was trying to put more severe limits on campaign spending. And then the other side of it is obviously Citizens United, right. you know, uh, uh, about nine years ago. But I think it's also interesting that this is done in juxtaposition to Zuckerberg because he also went to Congress and uh, Representative Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez really, uh, you know, took him to task. Absolutely. I mean, first she went down this line of questioning about, you know, well, what if blacks were targeted uh, for voter suppression? And then he said that he they might intercede. He wasn't very explicit on how they would do that. But so on one hand, he says, no, we're not going to intercede. And then he gives there's this example that he was, well, we we might intercede there. And then she proceeds to ask a question that got him into mumbles for about 30 seconds, <laughs> which was, could I run ads targeting Republicans in primaries saying that they voted for the Green New Deal? New Deal. Which, exactly. of course, they wouldn't. Right. Uh, so, and, and, and he seemed to be miffed by that. Right. Well, and it, it shows you how many tentacles there are to this thing. Absolutely. Right. I mean, it's it's even when you go with a blanket ban now. In Twitter's case, Dorsey said they will make some exceptions right. for things like voter registration, right? which seems like a logical thing to do. And harmless. And harmless. But how do you define voter registration ads right. vis-a-vis? Well, and, and the other side of it is, is okay, so they're not going to do political ads. But what about corporations that are doing Correct. public affairs ads you know, on an issue yeah, very this before much. Congress. Is that political or not? Right, exactly. So so more to come on this, but uh, boy, uh, politics was busy this week. And I wanted to talk about Beto O'Rourke and his presidential campaign. You've worked on a presidential campaign, Mike. And um, boy, the guy had so much energy coming out of the campaign, the senatorial campaign in Texas. And I want to focus on the brand and the communications aspects uh, of Beto dropping out of mm-hmm. the race because it seemed like he was so they had so so much potential yeah and his launch was basically the cover of Vanity Fair yeah and where in which he said um, I was born to do this <laughs> right yeah. and 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 to some his critics um, you know sort of a monarchical Kennedy-esque yeah. sort of yeah. you know assumption of the crown seemed uh-huh. to be going on there that I think hurt the brand as uh-huh. uh, to begin with, and then some of the other things like live streaming, getting his teeth cleaned, yeah. right? You know, that kind of thing. So how much of it here was the message mm-hmm. and the method versus the, the you know, the substance of it? It, it was it was campaigning by skateboarding. Right, exactly. You know, and, yeah. and, and, the, and it's interesting you use the Kennedy-esque uh, analogy, you know, with his I was born for it, this. Uh, uh, because I think it, it, you know, it's really more Ted Kennedy, yes, <laughs> and it brings a reminder, you know, of the 1979 interview with Roger Mudd, 
you know, right. where he couldn't provide a clear answer as to why do you want to run for president. Right, right. And, and I think in some ways uh, we as a population were less than clear right. as to why was he running for president. Um, you know, he had a he had, he had lost a race for the U.S. Senate, right. albeit in that race against Ted Cruz. Yeah. Uh, he actually collected more total actual votes than any Democrat had statewide yeah. prior. Um, but he struggled, I think, to find definition for his candidacy. Right. And he had two resets to his campaign, right. you know, trying to get... And, and El Paso what, shootings, what, et cetera. Well, well, yeah. and, and that was the last kind of reset, which out of the shoot. I thought was somewhat promising. Right. And then he seemed to go a bridge too far because then at one point he got caught up uh, quibbling with hosts on various public affairs shows as to whether or not he was going to confiscate guns. And I guess yeah. he had actually been quoted as saying We're that. We're coming for your guns. And then, kind of thing. And, and, and then he came back and tried to uh, play it back out. No, 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 no. What I really meant were weapons of war, you know, like AR-15s and AK-47s. Uh, but I think, you know, unfortunately, and much the same as with Ted Kennedy, here's a person that I think actually had a lot to give, yes. but we never really saw it. What we saw is we kind of saw the jumping up in the air, and the excitement. Standing on bars but, and tables. But and we didn't get the message. Yes, yeah. And and I think that's a challenge, you know, as, as, as any of these candidates. We've that's talked right. a little bit about uh, some other presidential candidates before that uh, everybody goes out there trying to get their one moment of fame and they're trying to get that 3% in order to get included uh, in the next debate. And sometimes they lose and, because they're stuck in the forest and, and they can't see through. through and it's trees. much like a corporate narrative these days. Who are you and why do you exist? And are you able to explain it to me simply? Absolutely. And, and uh, we saw his passion, uh, but he's young and, and maybe he'll be back. So uh, one more, uh, more politics here on the crux. Um, we're about to have, um, for the third time in my lifetime, televised impeachment hearings. Yeah. And you go back to 1974 with, uh, in that July, the, the uh, summer of 74, the impeachment hearings, uh, House Judiciary on Richard Nixon, and then 96, I believe, in Clinton. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I have to say, I was 14 years old in the when the Nixon hearings occurred. Mm-hmm. Pete Rodino, and oh, I, yeah. I mean, the names I still remember, Barbara Holtzman. Also remember Barbara Jordan, on Elizabeth the other Holtzman. side. Yeah. yeah, some of those people got defeated, like Charlie Sandman, exactly. traditionally Republican Who's seat in New Jersey. Stuck with him, stuck yeah. with Nixon, right? Yeah. I fell in love with those hearings. I mean, it was great TV back in 74. And, you know, my brother, w- who went on to work in the Reagan White House, our mother had to throw us out of the house. We were in <laughs> July. It was beautiful out, yeah, and get yeah. outside and do something. You know, yeah. mow the lawn or something. Yeah. And so um, it's really a constitutional lesson. Ninety-six, yeah. two. You you think back to Sensenbrenner and all those guys um, when the impeachment hearings for Clinton were going underway. So, Mike, do you think Americans are going to watch this? And should schools, for example, be comp- having their students? Uh, tune into this. I, I, I think it's such a great opportunity yeah. for us to have a, a, a common understanding of really what impeachment is and what the Constitution is all about. Well, you know, I, I do think these can be teachable moments. Yeah. I also think that uh, uh, they in some ways can also be reaffirming right. of who we are and the yeah. values that, that, that really do make America great. Uh, but I, I fear a little bit because of the way the process vote came to be yeah. and the actual vote was rigidly along party, party lines. lines yeah. And I, I just worry that we might be festering into kind of a partisan Another. cesspool. Yeah. You know, and, and there are elements of all of this uh, from, you know, a strategic and communications point of view uh, that should have Republicans concerned. Yes. Uh, so... No one right now is denying right. that President Trump said what he said yeah. to the Ukrainian president on that call. Uh, the president suggests that he might conduct a fireside chat <laughs> and reread everything. <laughs> Read the transcript. I don't know what that's <laughs> going call. to do. Uh, but in truth, no one has provided an actual defense right. other than saying there was no quid pro quo. And what goes for that was Mike's Nixon impersonation. Yeah. Go ahead. And then what goes for a White House defense 
is 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 a process debate. That's right. You know, and a kind of a denigrating of anybody who provides totally. evidence otherwise. Yeah. So you uh, know, the the only read the president's defenders seem to be able to grasp is a political one. Yes. And so there's a, a Siena College yeah. uh, survey, your alma mater. Green and gold, baby. Yeah, and it shows that a lot of the swing states, uh, they really don't want exactly. impeachment or yeah. impeachment hearings. Yeah, that's right. And I'm, I'm with you. It's all about the messaging. And I actually think the president's best defense is apparently what some senators, GOP senators, are considering, which is, yeah, uh, maybe there was a quid pro quo, but it's not something, it's not enough to remove him from office. I actually think, because you're right, they're not defending, the message is not about what actually happened. It's about process. And I think if they defend on process, it's a harder sell uh, other than this overturning the election, even though there's some some holes in that. Last one that we can talk about more, because I'm fascinated by it, Saudi Arabia yesterday finally took the first steps to the IPO, initial mm-hmm. you know initial public offering of uh, Saudi Aramco, the national oil company. Listen to this, Mike. Th- this is the world's largest and most uh, the world's most profitable company. Produces one tenth of the world's oil, and its reserves oil reserves are bigger than the next five privately owned companies in total. In total, like ExxonMobil, BP uh-huh. Shell, whomever you want to talk about. So huge. You know, the largest IPO ever was Alibaba at $22 billion. Mm-hmm. These guys are talking about uh, the kingdom of, of Saudi Arabia, IPOing a very small portion of the company. And it may, that initial part may be worth $65 billion. I mean, the, the size of this mm-hmm. is extraordinary. And of course... There's all kinds of reputation issues attached to it. The murder of um, the journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Absolutely. Um, fossil fuel itself, which many investors are are beginning or some investors are beginning to shy away from. And then from an investor standpoint, the drone attack in September on the Saudi um, facilities, uh, production facilities. So I'm just interested to watch what banks are involved, mm-hmm. how they message us to the marketplace. We don't talk about financial communications a lot, or we haven't yet on the crux. But to me, this is just going to be uh, an extraordinary uh, process to follow. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think, though, what's interesting here to me is that I think ultimately investors mm-hmm. vote with their heads. Yes. And the challenge is, do they feel they have enough new information right. about this entity and how does it compare to other players in the industry. You know, one of the biggest IPO run-ups this mm-hmm. year was Beyond Meat. They launched back in May and it opened at about $25 a share uh, back in, in, in on May 2nd. And it ran up to a value of like $239 a share um, by the end of July. Yeah. And now it sits at about $82 a share. Now, that kind of wild ride is due uh, because there's no other public comparison. Right. But to your point, there are a number of large oil companies out there. And while this might be large because people might want a piece of the action, um, I think that I do think it's going to be limited in terms of how it will ultimately play out. I think the more interesting story here is the element that it's a state-owned enterprise and that it is launching, you know, a a, a public IPO. And uh, I remember as I went into Cargill, you know, some years ago, and I'm reading uh, a book that had just recently then been published by Ian Bremmer uh, that was called The the, the End of the Free Market. Uh, Who wins the war between states and corporations? And it was all about, you know, how state-owned enterprises uh, kind of run the risk of of, of squeezing out, uh, you know, open competition and squeezing out free markets everywhere. So, so that to me is the bigger concern in all. Interesting, interesting. And you know, we we're going to have a great interview coming up on this uh, edition of the crux about the BU. PR Week Bellwether Survey, and there's a big, uh, some really interesting findings on purpose yeah. in, in that, and we have a discussion about it. I'm just really interested in how big a role the fact that this is an oil company yeah. that is tied to a, a, a government, to your point, that many people view or some people view as repressive, mm-hmm. um, even murderous in the case mm-hmm. of Khashoggi, and to your point, are investors going to vote with their head? 
mm -hmm. or their hearts mm -hmm. on this one. So let's go. Uh, let's go now to that interview. Let's do it. Today on the crux of the story, Gary and I are happy to share with our listeners a peek inside the latest PR Week Boston University Bellwether State of the Industry study. This is the second year of what is arguably the largest and most comprehensive survey of public relations professionals. It also is the only peer-reviewed and academic award-winning study of the profession. Uh, to help us better understand the study's key findings, we have with us uh, the key people behind it. Uh, Ray Kotcher, a professor of practice at Boston University, uh, Aruna Makrishna, an assistant professor here at Boston University, and Steve Barrett, editor-in-chief of PR Week. Welcome, gang. Thank you for having us here. Hello, Mike. Hi. Nice to be here. It's, boy, it's crowded here in the studio <laughs> at, uh, at BU. Well, well, welcome you know, we, to everyone. We, yeah. we need all the bodies to keep us warm yeah, now totally. that it's cooling off yes. here in Boston. Snow forecast later in the week. That's Just right. Morning, everyone. <laughs> um, so anyway, we're thrilled to have all of you here. Uh, Ray, maybe you could begin by giving us a bit of an overview as to how the Bellwether study came together and maybe some of the differences between this year's study and last. Sure. Thanks, Mike. Um, what we're, first off, I, I just want to um, thank Steve and, and his colleagues at PR Week uh, for their partnership. It's, it's worked out beautifully. Um, every year we learn together about how to uh, improve uh, the study and dive in in more meaningful ways. Uh, it has been truly a, uh, a, a, a wonderful partnership together. We originally launched into this project for two reasons. There was a need out there for a high quality, comprehensive snapshot of what's happening in the public relations business. There are many studies out there. This has evolved into the largest, and as you said, the most recognized study uh, in the business. We did this to, number one, uh, provide a service to the industry, to provide a glimpse into uh, the important shifts taking place uh, in public relations and communications. Uh, and we also do it for our students. This is a teaching tool as well. Um, I know I've used mm -hmm. it in, in my classes uh, extensively, and it really is a wonderful way to um, shed a light for the students. Here's the world you're going to be going out into yeah. exactly right now. This is what it's about. This is what's happening out there. Those are the two primary drivers for us, to pr provide value yeah. to our fellow professionals out there and to provide value to the students who are about to launch. Well, one of the things that I think it really does nicely is it picks up on the trends that are taking place uh, in the profession, both in-house as well as in agencies. But you focus this year uh, significantly on a, a few key areas of investigation. And, and I w wonder if you could share with our audience, you know, what those areas are and, and why you decided to center in on those. To answer your question, when we did the content analysis last year to prepare for the 2019 study, disruption is, a, is pervasive. It's mm -hmm. not just something that's impacting the public relations business. Uh, it's uh, impacting every business. Everyone. So we wanted to dive into disruption. What is disrupting the public relations business? The findings here show us that the agency business is clearly Mm -hmm. clearly in a moment of disruption. Mm -hmm. um, and we can get into that in a little bit more mm -hmm. detail. We um, wanted to uh, dive into uh, some of the major shifts that are taking place out there, particularly around purpose. Mm -hmm. That's something that seems to have actually uh, gained momentum, if anything, yeah. since last yeah. year. And we'll probably be doing a lot more uh, analysis of that in the, in the upcoming study. We uh, wanted to uh, provide value to employers and start to analyze the skill sets uh, that are necessary for success in public relations and also help the students begin to think about what is important for success as they get out there. So those are the primary areas that we uh, 
we looked at. This, uh, for us, it's really important to do this study because it helps bridge uh, seemingly far away worlds, I guess, of acad academia and the practice. Mm -hmm. And this study really helps do that. One of the really key things that we talked about in this year's study that was different from last year's was talking about uh, or asking our, uh, our participants about what their deal breakers are. Uh -huh. uh, what some deal breakers are related to uh, when they're thinking about accepting a job or taking on a client, what are some things that are deal breakers? Um, and so th those are some areas that mm -hmm. we focused on uh, in this year's study, as uh, as Ray talked about. So so uh, this, I'm really glad, Ray, that you mentioned the students. Uh, I use this in my classes as well. The primary question a lot of them ask us about their careers as they're um, going out in the world, they're graduates, is what's it like to work in an agency and what's it like to work in-house? Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And I think this study really gives them, uh, gives us as professors, faculty, something that we can use to add a little more color and depth to the answers that we give other than, you know, sort of the personal and anecdotal. So I'm really glad you mentioned that. And students really sort of dig that conversation. You know, it's very rich, uh, the study and, and their conversations. But I want to get back. So you were the big cheese at Ketchum for so long. <laughs> and I want to get bring Steve into the conversation here on this thing about the agency disruption mm -hmm. and what's happening. What does the studies show? And then, Steve, maybe you can uh, chime in on, on what it means and how agencies sh maybe should be responding to it. Sixty-five percent of our corporate side respondents, mm -hmm. of the corporates, are reporting confidence in the work that they're mm -hmm. doing. They believe that it's valued as the feedback that we got in their organizations. That's a two thirds of That's our respondents mm -hmm. feel that they're providing value and yeah. bringing it forward to their organizations. That yeah. was very encouraging. Uh, although you still worry about the one third. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what we tend to focus on as yeah. CCOs, right? Yeah. Yeah. That is certainly worth uh, noting. Yeah. Now, when we get specifically to your question about agency disruption, when we asked our agency respondents, do you believe that your business is in a moment of disruption? 72%, so almost three quarters, mm -hmm. said, yeah, 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 we are in a moment of disruption. And the corporates looking in on agencies watching mm -hmm. agencies and working with agencies, 61%, so almost two-thirds, mm -hmm. said, yeah, that's what we're seeing as we look into our agencies yeah. as, and as we look at the agency and it, is world. It, is it all new players, Ray? Is that what's disrupting them, the consultancies, et cetera? Yes. The, the competitive set is absolutely changing. Yep. There is no doubt um, about that. So more consultants, more specialties. Exactly. Exactly. When we're talking agency here, we're defining it as the traditional larger agencies, mm -hmm. the agencies that tend to be more full service. So on one end, um, they, they are being impacted by the smaller specialized boutiques. That's affecting agencies on one side. On the other side, absolutely the consulting firms. Mm -hmm. And all you need to do is just uh, read about what's happening at Accenture or Deloitte yeah. Yeah. or any of the large McKinsey, any of the large consultancies. And they're moving into the space pretty rapidly. The third factor in all of this is that what services are clients keeping inside their yeah. organizations <laughs> and where are they looking for help? Yeah. And there are some big changes going on um, in that realm of the agency corporate dynamic mm -hmm. as well. So overall disruption in business, certainly the specialty agencies, and then on the other end, the consultants, and then the dynamics of how corporates are shopping for and using agencies. Uh, so as part of the study, we, we asked uh, all our respondents about 20 different services, and we asked them whether they're keeping those services in-house, uh, giving them to agencies, giving them to, to consultancies, or giving them to others, and we asked mm -hmm. them to specify who these others are. We looked at both the client-side respondents as well as the agency respondents, and there were some interesting patterns that we saw that initially didn't make sense, but then, uh, Mike, you helped us think <laughs> through some of those patterns as well. Mm -hmm. So to start with, for among all the 20 services, at least half of the client-side respondents reported keeping each of the 20 services in-house, wow. which again points to, mm -hmm. points to disruption. And interestingly, we saw 56% of research and measurement, for example, is being kept in-house. 19% of research and measurement is being given to consulting firms. And only 14% is coming to PR comms agencies, mm -hmm. which is 
interesting. Yeah. It is fascinating. And this is something that we saw reflected by the agencies as well. Agencies are reporting that they are not seeing this, uh, seeing research and measurement work. Media relations is something that was yeah, really, really yeah. interesting. Yes. On media relations, we saw 70% of, of the client side respondents said that they kept media relations in house. On the flip side, 69% of the agency respondents say, said that they saw the media relations work. Uh, so what that would get me to thinking is that undoubtedly what's happening is that there's still plenty of work in media relations, mm -hmm. even on the agency side. But my guess is it's when people have a big announcement or when they have Different a big issue yeah. and, and, and they want people who can access the larger programs, the Sunday shows, the mm -hmm. morning news, pro public affairs programs, those kinds of things. And that's where they're finding utility from the agencies would be my guess. Yes, I agree completely. And Steve, on these findings and, and particularly on, you know, sort of the barbarians at the gate, for the agencies where they're seeing the consultancies and the niche firms, how are the traditional multinational agencies responding to all of that? Yeah, first of all, um, I just want to emphasize what a great partnership it's been with BU, with Ray, Arunima, Don, and the teams over there, because the market really did need this sort of study, and it, and it has rapidly become the biggest and best study in the, in the uh, industry. So, you know, over 1,600 participants. 128 questions. That's, a, that's wow. such a significant piece of work. Mm -hmm. And the year-on-year -year comparisons really make it even more significant. So just wanted to re-emphasize that this is a serious piece of work, and it really does uh, you know, shed some uh, interesting light on the industry. In terms of disruption, yeah, I mean, look, I'm in my 10th year doing the, the editor-in-chief <laughs> role wow. here at PR Week, and yeah, I had a full head of hair, Gary, when I started. <laughs> you and me both, remember. yeah. Maybe, maybe not quite. Um, but uh, the reason it stays interesting is because it really does change every 12 months. And, you know, you do have to track the changes and what it means and, and lift the lid and do the analysis and the implications. But it means you've got to be very nimble. You've got to be like change. You've got to like learning new skills if you're going to prosper in this environment. And, and everyone's going through that, not just PR people but everyone in the marketing mm -hmm. services sector. So if you look at the big holding companies, and people often say to me, Steve, why do you always talk about the big agencies? And by the way, we don't just talk about them at PR Week. Mm -hmm. We talk about little, uh, smaller firms, boutiques, mid-sized as well. But the big holding company firms do make up 80% of the PR market. Wow. So, hey, we've got to talk about them because that's uh, significant. Mm -hmm. But if you look at an Omnicom, let's say the uh, holding company Ray used to work for, they're having a bit of an identity crisis themselves because they've had all these different verticals, yeah. advertising, media, digital, PR, research, and they're all converging on the same space. So on the one hand, the bosses there who often are accountants, as Ray will probably remember, um, <laughs> they want to make money out of each of those verticals. But increasingly, they're all converging on the same space. So look at Cannes, for example, the Festival of Creativity. That's a good bellwether as mm -hmm. well. It's not as good as the PR Week Awards, which are the Oscars of the industry. But <laughs> Cannes does cover all the uh, awards across all the different disciplines. And the, there was it, it was getting ridiculous because the same campaigns were winning in every single category, pretty much. So the organizers actually clamped down on that a bit this year. So they have clamped down on that. But what we do see is if you look at the PR lions, for example, very often it's not necessarily a PR firm that's responsible right. for the winners there, and that's right. caused a lot of soul-searching. But that's really a micro example of what, I'm, what we're talking about here. It could be, for, if you look at Omnicom, it could just as easily be TBWA or BBDO mm -hmm. or DDB right. from their creative firms or the media firms, PhD, OMD, or it could be a PR firm. But the other side of that coin is the PR firms are winning in other categories mm -hmm. that are non-PR. And Ketchum is very strong at winning awards. PR Week celebrated its 20th anniversary last year, and at our oh, awards right. in March, they won the agency of the last 20 years for the winning the most awards. So that's wow. a, a that's, little uh, that's so surprising of the trend, isn't it? Yeah, sitting across from Ray, I'm really well, shocked, but it's it a great. <laughs> well, things really looked up when Ray left. No, yeah, I'm that's but I, I've seen Ray Steve... was instrumental in putting that in place. Yeah, totally. But I've seen Steve, some of the big holding company firms, also launching consultancies. And also, uh, I just saw one that's launching a you know more focused capital markets financial communications effort. So they're 
Yeah. You know, they're returning the volley, if you will, um, in some Ab- of this area. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's where the opportunity is, because um, just as, you know, maybe creative firms are doing earned media, PR firms are doing paid media. And, you know, mm-hmm. you have to, if you're going to be a PR professional, which I'm sure the students are, are looking at now, you need to have skills across the board. If you look at the peso mix, paid, earned, yes. shared, and owned, you've got to know all of those uh, if you're going to be a a good PR professional and and paid and owned the owned media part of it that's where brands are creating their own content that's where we found a lot of the in-housing happening you know maybe maybe when they got that set up they were using agencies now they're taking more of it in-house but agencies still play there and then shared which is possibly the thing that's changed everything most is social media you know it's just it's changed it well it's changed the world hasn't it let's yes. face it look at mm-hmm. that gary on your point about um consultancies that's an interesting one because you know you do see the accentures the mckinsey yes. and, and the big tech firms as well the oracles the ibms playing in this space and you, and you do see um the big firms developing their their senior consultancy and some you know there's a, a big strain of pr that only plays in that space if you look at the brunswick's or teneos yes. of this world yep yeah. But, you know, one thing that's never going to change, and that is, and that com- kind of plays to the uh, interaction with the CCO and CMO or the comms and marketing. When a crisis hits, and you'll, Gary and Mike, you'll, you'll remember yep. this, <laughs> it's quite hard to find the marketing folks, isn't it? It's, uh, <laughs> it, they, they quite like doing the brand stuff, but when yeah. a big... That's when they uh, say, we'll let Mikey eat it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they, it's like, over to you guys, and I don't think that's ever going to change, <laughs> and you really do need people who can thrive in that environment who know what to do who can keep keep a cool head and most importantly who can actually say to the c-suite and the ceo right that you know this is what i think and actually you have to be prepared to say i'm not sure that's the right strategy you've got to be very bold and And uh, why and senior in your outlook yeah exactly and um yeah. You know, one of the big trends that we saw in actually in the in the survey, especially from the comments that people made, was that some of the C-suites are maybe holding back the comms function in in acting on that disruption and and taking it to the next level. And so, in some cases, the comms teams want to do things, and the C-suite won't let them because they're still stuck in a little bit of a, a an old school point of view. So, whilst I don't think we say anymore that uh, PR needs a seat at the table i think it's it's earned and won that it still can be frustrating for them to not be able to go as far as they want to that's that was that definitely came out in the survey when you take a look at data uh, that's been collected in other studies they will tell you uh, that they value public relations and communications the most when it comes to those crisis Mm -hmm. situations Mm -hmm. that's when they want their public relations professionals and comms professionals at their side they value public relations and communications when it comes to reputational mm-hmm, mm-hmm. issues and challenges and and opportunities that that's happening um, on an increasing basis particularly Gary as you, as you point out regularly you know in this era of disruption mm-hmm. you better uh, be paying attention to crisis and and to the reputational equity that you're building uh, for for your company and CEOs I think in an increasing number are beginning to understand the value of public relations I, I want to go back to one point that Steve was making about can as being uh, indicative of uh, kind of this uh, marketing and advertising and public relations all kind of collapsing uh, on itself and 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 the lines of demarcation becoming uh, blurry in this study in our PR week Boston University study 55 percent of our corporate uh, respondents said that communications and marketing are somewhat or fully integrated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that means that communications and marketing in more than half of the companies that we studied or half the people who responded to our studies say, we're working side by side mm-hmm. with marketing. Now, here is where I think there is a tremendous um, challenge an opportunity for the public relations business. When it comes to the application of technologies, that did not score highly among communications. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, that kind of is is baffling. When you take a look at how marketing is, is applying the technology stack to what they do and how far out there they are, and now we're working alongside of them and expected to, you know, put our shoulders mm-hmm. together and, and push forward. And we're not either understanding as well as we should the MarTech stack 
right. or we're not applying technologies to the communications world. Well, and I found it interesting, you know, in the in the survey, you, know, you have people rating on a five point scale various mm -hmm. technologies. That's right. And the highest score for any of them was a three point three. You know, which was artificial intelligence as, as, as maybe being applicable to the PR profession. And as somebody who always was very keen to introduce new technology in the various companies that I served as CCO, I found that somewhat disheartening as well. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm very curious, um, uh, Steve, does that really match up with what you're seeing or hearing from companies? So I also wonder if there's some dissonance here where people in a survey will go ahead and tell us maybe the truth and that in their marketing approach, mm. you know, and in their hype to win clients, uh, that they're telling the world that, oh, yeah, we, we do that. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, we've got the, the, the greatest, uh, the best, the fastest, the best thing since night baseball. You know, um, <laughs> any comment on that, Steve? It's a real sign of the disruption. Uh, it's another sign of the big disruption in the arena. If you look at a lot of the stories we've been covering recently, you're seeing companies dispensing with different roles. For example, McDonald's getting rid of a CMO. Mm -hmm. We've right. seen Uber getting rid of their CMO. We've seen Johnson & Johnson getting rid of their CMO. We've seen other companies, and I'd love, Mike and Gary, I'd love to get your perspective on this. Two of your former companies, Cargill yeah. and GE, have actually got rid of their CCO position. Yep. Um, and they're not alone in that. And and I'm, obviously, it's our job at PR Week to try and draw trends from that and plot a course through it. It's difficult to do so. I wrote a piece about the CMO position, and I think that's becoming a more... T in marketing, this technical conversation has been going on for quite a long time already. I think CCOM's sphere is still playing catch-up on that. But if you look at it in terms of marketing, the CMO would have been more involved in the brand marketing stuff, the, the, the overall strategy. But it seems to me that the people who are now taking control are more of the in-the-weeds data marketers yes. who are really you know, at the, the engine room and bringing those business results in. Right. And there seems to be less appetite to have that CMO position where, and we all know that, that the average lifespan of a CMO is something like two years. Two years. Yeah. And they haven't got long. They haven't got long to, to make things happen. So that was my uh, sort of theory, but I, do, I, I don't think you can take broad brush trends from this. I think it depends on the organization, yeah. the company, the individuals involved. In the but industry it's going in different directions. Yeah. But I'd, I'd love to hear, well, well, you know, Gary, your point of view on Cargill and GE yeah, yeah. Uh, pretty much dispensing with that CCO role. Yeah, so so I think it's actually another facet of the disruption. I think what's happening is you'll see in some companies where, like at Coca-Cola, the person who is the CCO is also in charge of sustainability and also has some responsibility around public affairs, government relations. Uh, when I was at, at, at Cargill, you know, we basically didn't, have and we had a person that was head of marketing, but they reported into me. So I had a full mm -hmm. portfolio, and, and and what Cargill has has done initially is actually the person who has been overseeing the new sustainability role that they have in place is now where all of those communications assets are reporting today. I, I think that there are a couple of things happening all at once. One, I think there's a little concern about where the economy is headed. Uh, two, I think there's a lot of sense that there are lots of consultants coming at this from lots of different positions. And so even internally, people are saying, should we think about this differently? The tools are the same in marketing and PR. Um, maybe the message or the, particularly the audience we're trying to reach at, at certain times is different and maybe the tone of voice needs to be different. Is there a way we can collapse that? I don't know that anybody has uh, figured this fully out uh, and, and has the silver bullet that says mm -hmm. this is the way to do it, but I think we're going to continue to see experiments. I, I, would, I would answer by getting back to Ray's initial point, which is the low scores for tech among communicators. And I think partly that's a reaction, and this is, you know, s some of the, is the overselling of technology, in my view, mm -hmm. right, that communicators sometimes have a reaction to, because when it does all come down to is that data can be an interesting tool and can be very helpful in responding in these crises or reputation issues. 
I also note that in the page study, uh, communicators, more and more CCOs are taking control of corporate brands. Technology can be your friend, yeah. but it does. it's no replacement for judgment, wisdom, and leadership. Absolutely. Right? And, and I think that's why you get a lower score among CCOs for technology and some resistance to it from communicators. Now, Steve, to get to your question about GE and Cargill, I would say with all due respect to those companies, uh, they've lost the plot. Mm-hmm. Getting rid of CCO in an era of constant reputational threat is about the dumbest decision that you can make. And I don't say that because that's my former job. I just say that because the next thing can be coming at you around the corner. Mm-hmm. Uh, I look at my old company and say, look at the situation they're in. They need to explain where they are, where they're going, and all of those things. You just can't do that through marketing and, and, and paid. It's it just not possible. So I, I think that's why this BU stu- and PR Week study is so important is um, technology is and data and analysis are so important. At the same time, wisdom, judgment, and leadership uh, and, and the ability to engage with other members of the C-suite as a CCO and learn from them just as much as they learn from us mm-hmm. is still the most important thing in communications to me, both on the agency side and on the in-house side. So mm-hmm. that's the end of my soapbox. You know, <laughs> this show's over, guys. Uh, Thanks for coming. That's the headline for the. That's the headline for the podcast, Gary. Yeah. <laughs> well said. Well said. But you're right about um, talking about how some comms functions now do oversee a lot of different areas. Yes. Look at Michelle Weiss, the yeah. known. She's actually general secretary, but she, as well as looking over corporate brand and communications, she's got CSR public affairs, government relations, but she also oversees general counsel, legal, regulatory and compliance, food safety and scientific affairs. So there's, it's so difficult to draw a, you know, a thread through all of this and say, ah, oh, this is where it's going. Yes. And that really does speak to this whole disruption thing, doesn't it? Yes, it does. People are trying different things there. And we, you know, I think we're going to talk about purpose a bit as well. And I think that's driving a lot of this too. Business is being held to higher standards. And one thing we do know is that there is a vacuum in terms of political leadership in our institutions and that business is being asked to step into the gap. And that's where this whole purpose conversation starts, I think. Arunima, I wanted to ask you about one thing and, and Steve mentioned it and they're sort of related is this idea that the CCOs feel a little bit held back by, I think Steve used the word dinosaurs in the C-suite, which as it comes to communications, I think that's right. And another finding that the culture was getting in the way of speed. 40% of respondents said that culture was getting in the way of responding as quickly as we need to. What does that tell us about what's going on with our colleagues across and what can communicators and agencies do about it? Absolutely. So I think we have to look at multiple findings together uh, because it's really interesting that we're seeing that 79% of our of our respondents say that uh, top managements and boards are demanding accountability. And at the same time, we're seeing uh, that clients are keeping research and measurement in, in-house uh, rather than outsourcing it. So I think one of the things that we can do in order to try to make our cultures more responsive is is focus on that research and measurement and data and analytics piece to 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 show what how mm-hmm. the the impact of the work that we're doing. You know something that <clears throat> excuse me that struck me uh, when John Awada was leaving um, his his position as chief brand officer mm-hmm. at, at IBM is he did uh, in person phone interviews with I believe it was 100 or 125 chief executive exactly. officers. There largest concern was that we are living in a world of such rapid change. They're concerned. I am concerned that I can't move my employees quickly enough Mm -hmm. to help me navigate that change or capitalize um, on that change. And if you take a look at at the Accentures of the world, at the Deloitte's of the world, they're moving aggressively mm-hmm. into the area of change communication and change management mm-hmm. and change communication. Uh, and all the data points that I'm seeing out there, um, when you take a look at top management studies, uh, it is the, the concern about being able to move their cultures quickly enough is a very real concern among a large 
a large number of them. I could not agree more with your point, Gary, that, that you can't substitute human judgment and experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's got to be both. And, right. You know, all the all the best thinking around data does say that the you know that that you can have tons of data, but unless you know what to do with it and can understand it and interpret it and through experience apply it, it doesn't mean a hill of beans. Right. Yeah. You know, you have mountains full <laughs> of it. You know, but data. Um, is a gigantic force and is going to be by by exponentially um, moving forward in, in the world. What else do we know? We know that change is becoming increasingly important. Change management, mm-hmm. change yeah. communications is becoming increasingly important. As we look to the future of our business, it's almost an inevitability. Yeah. You're going to be disrupted. How are you going to handle it? Are you going to be able to move your organization quickly enough? Mm-hmm. What else do we know? We know that as we go through this generational shift, that the generations coming up behind us boomers, purpose matters yes. big time yes. to, to, to the generations coming up behind us. And so, you know, as we take a look at, at the future of our business, and certainly the study begins to explore these areas, this area of social purpose is a third area mm-hmm. that uh, is extraordinarily important, is having tremendous impact, um, is real. I mean, yeah. it's really real. I mean, it's really happening out there. And it's not just because of the generational shift. You know, the, the most senior people in business are beginning to say, yeah. So, Steve, I'd like to extend that into you just did a whole conference on on purpose and, and in fact, gave out your, I believe, first purpose awards. Tell me about that. And how did the people at the conference, particularly the people who did it well, how are they defining purpose and um, explaining it to the folks inside their organizations? Yeah, we did. We chose to build our whole annual conference around it um, and and actually extended it to a two-day event. And we added our inaugural purpose awards to sort of provide the case studies, the best practice, because there's no playbook on this yet. It's still a very developing area. One of the reasons we decided that was, you know, I was was visiting places like Davos. It was pretty much the only topic on everybody's lips. And and you're walking around Davos. If you were walking around there, you would think that every single company had purpose (laughs) at its heart and that it really was uh, looking after society as their number one priority. And it it set me thinking, one, uh, I'm a journalist and I'm a bit cynical and I didn't believe it for a moment. (laughs) But it certainly made me think, well, but everyone's talking about it. It's it's really in the zeitgeist. And then we had things happening. And, and one of the drivers of that was Larry Fink, the CEO sure. of BlackRock, who, yeah. who the year prior had put out his letter and said, basically, we're not investing in companies that don't demonstrate purpose. Mm-hmm. Then you had the business roundtable where 180-odd CEOs signed the pledge that uh, purpose was now on the same level as shareholder value in terms of the way they were going to run their companies. So it just felt like the this is becoming one of the biggest issues in business, in society. And your point is well made about, especially younger staffers um, do insist on it. Yeah, it was a funny moment at the conference was when we had a panel of Gen Zers and uh, they were asked from the audience, yeah, what would make you want to come and work for us? And they basically said, we don't want to work for you. <laughs> you <know, that's, laughs> which, which was, I thought was funny anyway. Um, and um, and their point is they have different values, the different views, they want to be entrepreneurs, etc. And, you know, to some extent, everyone was like that when they mm. were young. But that, that does seem to be a bigger driver. But it's, a, it's easy to sign a, a pledge and some would say, well, not before mm. time. It's a lot more difficult to put this into practice when you come up with proper business decisions that are going to make big differences to your revenues and your profit. So just look at the whole NBA example recently, right? You can't have purpose and that suddenly stops outside the boundaries of the United States. And when it comes to China, it's like, oh, actually, we can't say that because we'll lose all these fans or all these concessions or all this revenue. Exactly. And uh, that actually hits all so many different companies from nike through to all the sportswear brands the sports franchises the broadcasters and that's the real test and actually i'm afraid they're kind of falling down on it business and 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 that just and young people are going to look at that and say they're just playing at this this is not real it's not authentic what does the study actually tell us about this question of uh, purpose. In the study, uh, we did some additional analyses uh, on related to purpose. So we tried to understand whether there were differences between age groups and differences between 
uh, pe uh, respondents' perceptions about purpose in their organizations across managerial levels. Um, and those findings are actually really interesting. We asked, uh, we, we asked people to respond to the statements, my organization has a clearly articulated purpose, a, clearly, a widely understood purpose, and that organizational purpose is important in my organization. And what we found was that across all three, the younger folks tended to, to report less agreement on these three statements than the uh -huh. older folks. Um, and across managerial levels as well, the so highest- So their expectations are higher. Their expectations are higher, but the, the, the purpose language or the purpose, the purpose of the purpose mm -hmm. is not uh -huh. trickling down to junior entry level uh, and middle management um, uh, participants. And what we're seeing is that conversations are happening in Davos at the top management level, at the CCO, CEO level, but it's not reflecting in organizations uh, working, at least to the to the entry level uh, early career folks. So an opportunity for better communications in that mm -hmm. space. Absolutely. Uh, now, one other thing that I thought was really interesting about the study is your attempt to try to look at the trade-offs. But I love the fact that you really tried to center in on that. And I was very interested to see how PR pros are looking at those kinds of trade-offs today. Uh, can one of you comment on that? Um, we uh, asked our corporate side uh, respondents, when you're thinking about um, what services you want to, uh, what areas, what skill sets you want to, to manage internally versus mm -hmm. what you want to outsource, what are the drivers in your decision making? And uh, cost w was the number one driver in terms of deciding whether to keep something in-house or to, uh, or to outsource it. The quality of the work was number two. And these, these were fairly closely bunched, mm -hmm. but there were still clear differences. Cost, quality, and then finally, time came, mm. in, th came in third. <laughs> so those are interesting brand attributes, you know, a brand that, that excels on cost uh, and, and quality. Time, mm, you know, maybe not, maybe not as so, not so good. <laughs> then, as I thought about it, as it applies to the agency world, when we were looking at this disruption and what areas are agencies? Again, we're talking now about the more traditional large agencies. Where are they getting work? Where are the clients looking to them? Where are they depending on them? It came down to to a couple of different areas: creative ideation for multimedia content development. Mm. And then finally, you know, we talked about the tension in media relations, but in media relations as well. If you're managing a large agency today and you're trying to figure out what product lines and what practice areas and what skill sets you're going to build, you would look at those three. And, and there's a lot more texture around all of that in, in the premium report that, that that is also available, as well as a lot of great information on the, the drivers of purpose. So how do we go about getting the premium report? Ray is a consummate pro yes. and uh, <laughs> still got it. Yeah, you can you go to prweek.com and there's a couple of ways. There's a there's a banner ad on the. Uh, I know uh, not everyone clicks on banners, but this one's worth clicking on. That's on the homepage, the Communications Bellwether Survey Premium Edition, uh, or you can go to the Resources section and click on Bellwether Survey 2019. That'll take you to our feature, which you can get as a PR Week subscriber, but it also gives you links to the Premium Edition. And Ray's absolutely right. There's a load more analysis in there, loads more data, lots of opinion, and it's it's a real it's a it's a very good investment because it's it's the best summary of of the report, and uh, you can't get everything into a four page feature. So do check that out. The CCOs are in the, at the heart of this. You know what yeah. the analogy I use is totally. that they are the liquid that runs through the organisation and brings it together. And actually, that's a fantastically important role. And to Gary, you're absolutely right. Dispensing with that role, especially at these times, seems a little short-sighted. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, uh, as we say, interesting, disruptive times. And you need all the analysis and content and um, resources that you can get hold of to, to understand it and, take the, and also lead the industry forward and take those, these discussions forward practically. I wanted to provide some thanks, um, some heartfelt thanks to uh, some of the important organizations in the public relations world that, that helped us um, distribute the study and get the breadth and depth of responses that we did. The Institute for Public Relations, the PR Council, the Public Relations Society of America, and that was in addition to the readers and subscribers to PR Week who also um, replied to the study in, in big numbers. In addition to um, uh, providing value to the industry at large, we're also 
building research um, that is valuable to the academic side of the public relations business as well. Mm. There's so much data out there about um, in a crisis situation, for example, that looks like this. Here are the ways that mm-hmm. here are the ways that research shows us that they, that they can be most effectively handled. But there's a lot of research out there that's very valuable to those on the on the, on the practice side mm-hmm. of, of the business. That I just you know at being here at, at Boston University now, I'm I'm getting um, a, a, a view into. And actually, uh, we um, with this with this study won a third place paper award at the AEJMC, the Association. Uh, for education and journalism and mass communication, uh, just uh, earlier this year, so um, it's getting it's getting peer reviewed, right. it's getting recognized, and um, that that uh, gives us uh, a lot of energy uh, for yeah. going forward as well because uh, the, the data is good, it's solid, and it means something. Terrific! Con- congrats and thank you, Arunima, Ray, Steve. Uh, again, it's the second annual PR Week. Boston University Bellwether State of the Industry Study. Uh, Thank you for joining us, and thanks for a terrific study. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.